Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. I'm going to choose my words wisely here, and as I do, you can turn to Revelation chapter 15, which is where we're going to pick up this morning, but there were some events yesterday that I cannot tell you the details, but I was reminded yet again yesterday, reminded yet again that if God ever takes his hand off you, you will not get better. I was called yesterday by a family in crisis because of a young girl who I baptized 20 years ago. And her life has um, just become a disaster. 
And so her parents called me yesterday, and all I could think after the phone call was I am so grateful that God never left me to myself. Even in my best moments, Isaiah is proven true that all our best righteousnesses are filthy rags. Even the best prayer I ever prayed had enough sinful moments and thoughts in it that I'm incapable of being holy enough to please or impress the eternally righteous God. And the only way that I'm able to walk out my life without going completely insane and without chasing all the basest instincts that are deeply ingrained in my flesh is by God keeping his hand of protection on me. And if he ever lifted his hand off me or you, how quickly we would go right back to our worst instincts. So, I just want to say this as plainly and clearly and seriously as I possibly can. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad we sing together. I like the fellowship of GCA. I'm glad that you all like each other, love each other, and hang around with each other. But this is not a game. This is life and death. This is about eternity. This is about the things that you personally are going to encounter when you leave the planet. And you are either going to walk in the good graces of God or you are going to be condemned by the righteous holy God. And that, I repeat, is not a game. So even though we come here together and we're happy and we're joyous and I love to joke as much as anybody else, but it's not a game. It's serious stuff, and oh, how my heart broke yesterday to see somebody fall under their own flesh, their own will, their own desire, and I can't even begin to describe to you how bad it is. So, let's read Revelation chapter 15. We're going to read the whole chapter first. It's not a long chapter. Then we will go back and look into the details. We have been going verse by verse through the book of Revelation the same way that we go verse by verse through books of the Bible. For our visitors here this morning, you're just going to have to hang on to your brain and just take the ride with us. If you haven't been listening online, then I hope that you don't just get lost this morning. But... Chapter 15 of Revelation says this. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. Seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last. Because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had come off victorious from the beast and from his image and from the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are thy ways. Thou King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou alone art holy, for all nations will come and worship before you. And your righteous acts have been revealed. After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And seven angels who had seven plagues came out of the temple, clothed in linen, clean and bright, 
and girded around their breasts with golden girdles. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Obviously, the main theme of this chapter is the seven plagues. Now, I've been saying all the way through the book of Revelation that this is a very Jewish book. And I hope that I have been able to demonstrate to you week after week that the better you know your Old Testament the better you're going to understand the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is not that difficult to understand. There are not that many symbols or images that are ununderstandable. Would that be the word that I'm looking for? Here we're talking about seven plagues, but these seven plagues are actually something that God has predicted all the way back in the book of Exodus. When God first gave the law to the children of Israel... He told them that if they kept his law, he was going to bless them. But he also said, if you do not keep this law, I will put seven plagues on you. And so this concept of seven plagues as being part of Israel's specific relationship with God runs throughout the Bible and then finds its culmination in the book of Revelation. So that's where we're going to start this morning. In fact, Even though we're going to look at the book of Exodus a couple of times, we're going to start in the book of Leviticus. So turn to the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament. We're going to spend a lot of time in the Old Testament this morning. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. The word Leviticus just means the law. This is the point in Israel's history where they have left Egypt. They are at Mount Sinai and God is pouring out the law. Leviticus chapter 26. Now, if I were going to be kind to you, and uh, if I was paying attention to the clock, I would just point out the particular verse here that I'm interested in. But we're going to read the majority of this chapter just so that you can see the blessings that God promises Israel if they'll just be obedient. And the one thing they cannot be is obedient to the law. And God, by the way, knows that. He knows when he gave them the law that they weren't going to do it and in fact said to them, now when you don't do it, this is what I'm going to do to you. Because he knows human beings. He knows human nature. He knows our sinful proclivities. He knows that we are just dust and that we cannot raise ourselves up to the high and holy standard that he expects from people. That, again, is why having a deliverer, a substitute, a savior is so vitally important. Because if God judges you according to the law, well, then you're a goner. Here's how he put it to the children of Israel He has delivered them out of Egypt. He's brought them to Mount Sinai. He's given them the law. Chapter 26, verse 1 of the book of Leviticus. You shall not make for yourselves idols, nor shall you set up for yourselves an image or a sacred pillar, nor shall you place a figured stone in your hand to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths, And reverence my sanctuary. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, then I will give you rains in their season so that the land will yield its produce and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. Indeed, your threshing will last for you until the grape gathering, and the grape gathering will last until the sowing time. And you will thus eat your food to the full and live securely in your land. I shall also grant peace in your land, so that you may lay down with no one to make you tremble. 
I shall also eliminate harmful beasts from your land, and no sword will pass through your land. But you will chase your enemies, and they will fall before you by the sword. Five of you will chase a hundred, and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand, and your enemies will fall before you by the sword. So I will turn toward you and make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will confirm my covenant with you. And you will eat the old supply and clear out the old because of the new. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not reject you. And I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, so that you should not be their slaves. And I broke the bars of your yoke. And I made you to walk uprightly. Okay, that sounds like a really good deal. I'm going to give you food. I'm going to protect you from your enemies. I'm going to protect you from wild animals. I'm going to indeed make this a land of milk and honey. You're going to eat to the full. Your harvest and your grapes and your food is going to be plentiful. All you have to do is obey me. Did they do it? No, and God knew that. Starting at verse 14, he says, and here's what I'll do if you don't keep it. Now, importantly, as you read through these very bad things that God says he's going to do to them, you would think that if they had the capability to do it, these threats from God would be adequate inducement to actually do it. Because not only are you going to get lots of good stuff if you do it, But if you don't do it, you get lots of bad stuff. And yet, because human beings are incapable of living up to the righteous standard of God, even knowing the good they can have and the bad that's coming their way, they nevertheless don't do it. Here's what God says, starting at verse 14. But if you do not obey me and do not carry out all these commandments... If instead you reject my statutes, and if your soul abhors my ordinances so as not to carry out all my commandments, and so break my covenant, I in turn will do this to you. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption, and fever that shall waste away the eyes and cause your soul to pine away. Also, You shall sow your seed uselessly, for your enemies will eat it all up. And I will set my face against you, so that you will be struck down before your enemies. And those who hate you will rule over you, and you shall flee when no one is pursuing you. If also, after all these things, you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins." And I will also break down your pride of power. I will also make your sky like iron and your earth like bronze. That means no rain, no harvest. And your strength shall be spent uselessly. For your land shall not yield its produce and the trees shall not yield their fruit. If then, after all that, you would think a smart person after going through all that. All the sickness, all the decay, there's no rain, there's no food. You'd think at that point they'd say, you know, we really should turn back to God because he told us that if we didn't follow his commandments, this would happen. And now it's happening, so clearly we ought to go back to God. No, God ups the ante yet again. Verse 21, if then you act with hostility against me and are unwilling to obey me, I will increase the plague on you seven times according to your sins. Seven plagues. That's the ultimate punishment for Israel. God promised them seven plagues. Verse 22. And I will let loose among you the beasts of the field, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your cattle. And reduce your numbers so that your roads lie deserted. 
And if by these things you are not turned to me, but act with hostility against me, then I will act with hostility against you, and I, even I, will strike you seven times for your sins. And I will also bring upon you a sword which will execute vengeance for the covenant. And when you gather together in your cities, I will send pestilence upon you so that you shall be delivered into your enemies' hands. And when I break your staff of bread, ten women will bake your bread in one oven, and they will bring back your bread in rationed amounts so that you will eat and not be satisfied. And yet, in spite of this, you do not obey me, but act with hostility against me. Then I will act with wrathful hostility against you, and I, even I, will punish you seven times for your sins. Okay, what was the point of reading all that? That God told Israel at the very beginning of his relationship with them that if they didn't keep his covenant, he was going to bring on them seven plagues. It's very specific. So then what a surprise that we get to the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, as God is dealing with this time of trouble, this time of tribulation, this day of the Lord, this time such as never was or ever would be again, he is focusing his attention on Israel and finally doing the very thing he said he was going to do. In other words, it shouldn't be a surprise to see God pouring out wrath against Israel left on the planet during this period of time because he promised them from the very beginning of his relationship and covenant with them that he was going to bring about this exact thing. And so it's no surprise that what John would see in chapter 15 of Revelation, the first thing he saw was another sign, another indication in heaven, great and marvelous, Far beyond his comprehension, it made him marvel that God was now doing this. Seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last plagues. So it started in the book of Leviticus, right away, right at the beginning, in God's dealings with Israel. He told them back then, do what I say to do, or I'll bring these terrible plagues on you. The whole of human history has been about God's interactions and dealings with Israel specifically and with his people and in their continued rebellion. Here, let's check this real quickly. Let's see if this rebellion is true. Are Israelites, are Jews for the most part, still unconverted to Christ? Yes. Is that generally true? Okay, that would be rebellion against the covenant of God because part of the covenant of the law of God includes Moses saying that there was going to be another prophet greater than him and that the gathering of the people would be to him. And then just like Leon read for us this morning, Jesus shows up among the Jews. He comes to his own and his own do not receive him. And yet at his baptism, God declares from heaven This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. Did they do it? No, they kill him. So what does that mean? If God's going to keep his word, if God is a faithful God, if God is a sovereign God who always does whatever he says he's going to do, if he then watches this people group who he's in covenant with, who he has said, if you keep my law, I'll bless you. And if you don't keep my law, I will punish you and punish you bad. And then they don't keep his covenant. And then they reject his prophets. And then they reject his son. What's the next thing he's going to do if he's a faithful God? He's going to do exactly what he said he's going to do. I'm going to bring these plagues on you. And so then, Revelation 15, there are seven angels with seven plagues. Again, the better you know your Old Testament, the more sense the book of Revelation makes. John sees that God is finally going to do the very thing that God has always said he is going to do. And remarkably, as that is happening, 
as God is preparing to pour out his wrath on the people who are remaining on the planet, there's celebration in heaven. There's worship in heaven. There are people extolling the glory of God for doing the very thing God always said God was going to do, proving yet again how consistent our God is, how trustworthy our God is. Because after all, a God who has this kind of oversight of human history is the exact same God who found you, the same God who said, your mind eternally I will cover your sins by the blood of my son. And then that God does not change his mind. Even though you're very malleable, even though you change, even though you're rebellious, even though you can be faithless, he doesn't deal with you the way he deals with Israel. Instead, he deals with you through the blood of the Savior, saving you eternally, which is why we talk so much about this eternal security that we have because that security is not in us. It is in the finished work of Christ and in the unchanging nature of God. That's the kind of God you want is the God who doesn't change, doesn't alter his mind, the kind of God who can say to you, you're going to be in my presence, in my glory forever, and then you can have full confidence that's going to happen. Why? Because that's the God who said to Israel, if you don't follow my law, seven plagues, all of human history, they don't do it. The end of human history, seven plagues. You get it? That's a really, really sovereign God. That's a God who is really, really in charge of human history. It's a God who really keeps his word, which is why we spend so much time here concentrating on the word of God, because he is telling us in advance what he's like and what he's going to do. I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last plagues, because in them the wrath of God is finished. We've been seeing these trumpets and we've been seeing these various plagues that God has been pouring out on the planet. But now they're going to come to a culmination in chapter 16. We're going to start hearing about the bowls. Some translations say the vials. In them is the very wrath of God that he is then pouring out on the people left on the planet. Verse 2 of chapter 15 presents us with this incredible contrast. I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with fire. Anybody want to explain that one to us? Because every once in a while, there are things in the book of Revelation describing heaven that we just got to go, well, even John was searching for words. I mean, a sea of glass mixed with fire. What did John see? Whatever he saw was so incredible, so marvelous, that he even had to say, it was, it was incredible, it was marvelous. It was great. I saw it. All I can describe it as is, well, it was like a sea of glass mixed with fire. Those who came off victorious from the beast and from his image and from the number of his name were standing on the sea of glass holding lyres, musical instruments, translated harps here, and they were standing before God. Now, turn back a chapter. In chapter 14, starting at verse 9, an angel, a third one, said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or upon his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in his cup of anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the perseverance of the saints 
who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. When we looked at that over the last couple of weeks, I said, okay, if your two options are take the mark or get killed, choose dead. Because the long-term consequences of choosing a mark in your right hand and your forehead, which just is a demonstration of ownership, and we know that the beast is driven by, is inhabited by Satan himself. So if you are worshiping Satan here on this planet, then God is going to pour out his wrath on you without mixture. He's not going to dilute it at all. Can you imagine the undiluted wrath of God being poured out on his enemies? You don't want to be there. But in contrast to the people who actually take the mark, here John sees a group of people who would come off victorious from the beast and from his image and from the number of his name. And they were standing on a sea of glass Worshiping God with musical instruments that God gave them. Heavenly harps, heavenly lyres. Worshiping God in his presence on the sea of glass. Okay, there's the contrast. There are the two groups of people. The people who take the mark and fall under God's wrath. The people who overcome, who choose death, who choose martyrdom. And they end up standing on the sea of glass worshiping God. That is why for those couple of weeks... I said, if you're given that option, choose the dead one. That's really hard for us because we're human beings and we like ourselves a lot. We like ourselves, most of us, way too much. And so when faced with the idea you're going to be killed and probably in some terrible way like beheading, Well, then we just naturally want to go, well, no, I'd rather avoid that. What do I have to do to avoid people uh, pouring out their wrath on me? Look, if human beings are pouring out their wrath on you, that is a very temporary wrath. If God is pouring out his unmitigated wrath on you, that is an eternal wrath, and there's no escaping that. Standing in the glory of God, worshiping God, is an eternal glory of God. So what is your life really worth here? So you get a few more days, a few more weeks here on the planet, and then you get eternity in the outer darkness, in the wrath of God, in the place that Jesus said, the worm never sleeps and the fire's never quenched. So then what really is your life right here, your terrestrial life, your human fleshly life right now? What is it really worth compared to eternal glory with God? Not much. Not much. So the contrast is, I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had come off victorious from the beast and from his image and from the number of his name standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And then what do they do? They sing. This is really interesting. You've got to pay attention to the details. They sing the song of of Moses. Anybody here know the song of Moses? Why not? Because you're Gentiles. Yeah, because you're a bunch of Gentiles. Anybody here in the room right now, were, were any of you delivered out of Egypt and then taken to the land of Canaan with Israel when they moved? Anybody? Any? No. And the song of Moses was part of glorifying God, thanking God for delivering Israel out of Egypt and taking them through the wilderness to the land of Canaan. So once again, the very fact that this group of people who overcame the beast, who didn't take the mark, are obviously Israelites. They're obviously Jews because they're also people who are going to celebrate by singing the very song of Moses, which is a song of deliverance of Israel. Let's go look at it. Turn to Exodus 15. Keep your finger in Revelation. We'll be back there at some point. 
let's get to know this song of Moses. It's a fairly long song. But what you'll see is that it is singing, praising, celebrating God for his deliverance of his people. And so, of course, the Israelites who have overcome the beast and his mark, when they get to heaven, of course they would sing this song because it's a song of God's continuous and faithful deliverance of his people Israel, naturally. But then in the book of Revelation, not only do they sing the song of Moses, but then they sing this new song. And hopefully we'll have time to look at all of that this morning. Chapter 15 of the book of Exodus, starting at verse 1, then Moses... And the sons of Israel sang this song to Yahweh. It's very specific. It's Moses who taught it to them. It's Israel, the sons of Israel who sang it. It's their song. It belongs to them. So when John, also a Jew, mentions that those who overcame the beast sang the song of Moses, he is identifying the people group that are standing on the sea of glass. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. What's that about? That's about the fact that God drowned the Egyptian army on the night that God delivered Israel out of Egypt. So I ask you again, anybody here part of that? No? No? It's a very specific people group. That's all I'm getting at. Verse 2, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior, and Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea, and the choicest of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deeps cover them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Thy right hand, O Yahweh, is majestic and powerful. Thy right hand, O Yahweh, shatters the enemy. And in the greatness of your excellence, you do overthrow those who rise up against you. And you do send forth your burning anger, and it consumes them as chaff. And at the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing waters stood like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be gratified against them. I will draw out my sword and my hand shall destroy them. And thou didst blow with thy wind, and the sea covered them. And they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you among all the gods, O Yahweh? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? Thou didst stretch out thy right hand, and the earth swallowed them. And in thy loving kindness, thou hast led thy people, whom thou hast redeemed. And in thy strength, thou hast guided them to thy holy habitation. Can you see why they would sing that when they're standing on the crystal sea? Can you understand why they would say things like, You stretched out your right hand, and with your loving kindness, you led your people whom you redeemed. In your strength, you guided them right here to your holy habitation. Now the peoples, the Gentiles, those who are on the outside, the peoples have heard about it, and they trembled. And anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom were dismayed, and the leaders of Moab trembling grips them. And all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. 
and by the greatness of thine arm. They are motionless as stone until thy people pass over, O Lord, until thy people pass over whom you have purchased. And thou will bring them and plant them in your own mountain, the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, which thou hast made for thy dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord, Yahweh, shall reign forever and ever. For the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea on them, But the sons of Israel walked on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And then what we read is that the women all broke out tabrets, tambourines, and sang and played before God. So this is a song of celebration to God and a recognition that God redeemed Israel from their enemies in order to deliver them not only into the land that God had promised them, but that ultimately they were going to be brought into the very sanctuary of God, into the very presence of the God who redeemed them. To me, that seems like a very, very appropriate song for those same people, that same people group who have that same history are going to stand before God and praise God, the very God of their fathers, who has a history of delivering them. So... Notice that even though they overcame the beast, even though they didn't take the mark, even though they're standing on the sea of glass before God, who gets all the credit? God gets all the credit. There's not a one of them in the midst that you read going, me, me, me. It's all about me. Watch me go. Dig me. It's all about God. It's all about the glory of God. Why does God do anything? For his glory, one person in the very back, my own son, was the only person. Why does God do anything? For his glory. glory. Very good. Thank you. (laughs) Out of the mouth of babes. Yeah, for his glory. Everything God does, he's in the enterprise of glorifying himself. And that is the reason that he chose Israel. That is the reason that he chose Abraham and his descendants. That is the reason that he made a covenant with Abraham that had no qualifications to it. It is a covenant that God made with himself in which he promised Abraham descendants like the stars of the heavens, like the sands of the seas, and promised them that they would have this land in perpetuity. God made that unconditional covenant with Abraham and his descendants, and the culmination of it is that part of Israel is standing in front of God on the sea of glass, singing the song of Moses to him as God is preparing the kingdom that's going to belong to Jesus Christ, where all the nations of the earth are going to flow to Jerusalem because the blessings of God are coming from Jerusalem out into the Gentile nations. God is finally doing everything he said he was going to do ever since the book of Genesis. That's our God. I don't know about you, that's my God. That's the God of the Bible. That's the God who can do whatever he wants anytime he wants. And that same God who can do anything he wants picked you. Oh, get on your face. How do you not worship a God like that? We're back in Revelation. I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had come off victorious from the beast and from his image and from the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Okay, now we get to know the song of the Lamb. Previously, we read that the Martyrs martyred themselves because they had the commandments, the testimony of God, and the testimony of Christ. And so we've identified them for weeks now as being converted Jews. 
converted Israelites. Here again, we have people singing the song of Moses, clearly Israelites, and also the song of the Lamb, clearly converted. And how is it that they were converted during this time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again? Because the book of Revelation has been telling us about witnesses, the 144,000 witnesses, who, by the way, were 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. So who are they witnessing to? Israel. So no surprise that the converts that we're finding at this point in the book of Revelation come from Israel. And then the final two prophets came along. What were they doing? Witnessing before the whole world. And then finally an angel flies in the mid-heavens declaring what is called the everlasting gospel. And yet it is a declaration of God's judgment against the world. And now that same sovereign God is pouring out his judgment. And while he is preparing the seven bowls of judgment that we're about to read about, there's all this worship in heaven. Great and marvelous are your works. What works are they talking about at this moment? God's pouring out wrath on the planet. And yet it's the very wrath that he said back in Leviticus. He was going to pour out. And as the denizens of heaven watch God pour out the very wrath he said he was going to pour out, they say, great, marvelous are your works. You're the only God who could do this. Great and marvelous are your works. Oh, Lord God, the Almighty. Okay, quick question. I know I take a certain amount of pushback, especially on the internet, over the fact that we talk a lot here at Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace assembly. We talk a lot about the fact that God is sovereign. And I say that a lot, God is sovereign. Sometimes people say, okay, we get it. Okay, God is sovereign, okay. So let me ask you a question. Is God identified in heaven as the almighty? Yes. How much might, how much power does that leave for anyone else? None. None. He has all the power. God gives himself the name El Shaddai. That's part of his revelation of who he is and what he's like. And that means God who's all-powerful, God Almighty. So at the very beginning, when God is first declaring who he is, when he is first revealing himself to human beings, one of the characteristics that he points out about himself is, I have all the power. Here at the end of the book of Revelation, the denizens of heaven are praising God by saying, you're the God who has all the power. In the beginning of the Bible, God has to reveal it, God has to say it, God has to describe it, I'm the God who has all the power. It wraps up with the people in heaven saying, yep, you're right, you have all the power. Especially it's being said by people who are standing on the sea of glass. In heaven, these are people who would know, who are seeing firsthand the glory, the magnificence of this God, and they are declaring that he was absolutely right. You're the God who has all the power. So, let's say, hypothetically, that Micah gets to heaven. How are you going to get there? Because of something you did? He gets all the glory. He has all the power. And so even in the matter of salvation, even in the matter of you waking up this morning, even in the matter of you knowing your own name right now, even in the matter of the next breath you draw, everything about your existence and ultimate salvation is a result of God glorifying himself, utilizing his almighty power in order to demonstrate who he is and what he's like. And in the end, he has people singing praises to him, declaring that he is indeed the almighty. I say, get on his side, start declaring it now, start worshiping him now because he is the almighty and he's going to show it to you one way or the other. In other words... 
There are going to be people standing in his presence eternally because of his almighty power. And there are going to be people spending eternity in outer darkness because of his almighty power. Did I say anything the Bible doesn't say? Nope. Well, then if you're going to walk around claiming to be a Christian, you need to adhere to that almighty God and you need to worship that almighty God. You need to praise that almighty God and you need to walk out your life according to that almighty God because he's not going to change. You're going to. Got it? Here at GCA, by the way, we don't shout amen. We just say things like, got it? I don't don't know what that's about. (laughs) Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. And then in the midst of him pouring out wrath without mixture, the denizens of heaven declare your ways are righteous and true. Righteous and honest. Is God indeed righteous? Yes. Yes. What about when he does things you don't agree with? Is he still righteous? Yes. What about when you're hurting? Is he still righteous? Yes. What about when the world doesn't seem fair? Is he still righteous? Yes. Yeah. By definition, everything God does is righteous because it's being done by a righteous God. And he has all the power, which means he can do whatever he wants. And so he's going to act in accordance with his own holiness and his own righteousness, and you don't get a vote. All you get to do is declare righteous and honest are all your works. Righteous and true is whatever you do. You bow the knee to that God, and whatever it is he does with you in this lifetime is ultimately for his own glory and ultimately for your own good. And all you can do sometimes is bow the knee before that God and say, yes, sir, whatever you've decided, you're God, I'm not. O Lord God, the Almighty, Righteous and true are your ways, and you are king of the nations. It's really, really interesting again. I'm running out of time here. Really interesting again that in the Old Testament, God is clearly the God of Israel. He calls himself that. I am the God of Israel. He calls himself the Redeemer of Israel. Israel declares that Yahweh is their God. In the history of planet Earth, there have been pantheons of supposed gods. Plenty of different idols, lots of different mythology, different demigods. And yet God declares over and over again, I'm the only God. I am the only true and faithful God. I'm the only God who is. And then he mocks all the other gods for their inability to talk or hear or walk or think or If they're going to be moved, people have to pick them up and move them. I mean, that's not much of a god. And so he mocks all the other gods because he is the only righteous and true God. And yet throughout the Old Testament, he declares that not only is he Israel's God, but that he is going to demonstrate his godhood to all the nations, to all the Gentiles. That's why you, who we've already established, are Gentiles. That's why you now are in covenant with God, because God is demonstrating himself, introducing himself, coming into covenant with Gentiles and nations. And here in the declaration of who this God of heaven is, he is declared to be the king of the nations. Not only is he spiritually the king of the nations, But his son is going to establish David's throne in Jerusalem and he's going to demonstrate with his rod of iron and that sharp sword coming out of his mouth, he's going to demonstrate that he is the ruler and the king of the nations of planet Earth. That's been predicted ever since the book of Daniel. Righteous and true are your ways. You are the king of the nations. And then this very piercing question, who will not Fear, O Yahweh, and glorify your name. 
Look, if you got even a glimpse, if you got the slightest little view of who this God is and what this God is like, you would do what everybody in the Bible does. As soon as somebody sees an angel or sees a vision of God, what's the first thing they do? They fall down in front of him. Or they say, woe is me, because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Because you're going to know immediately his righteous, holy, eternal glory and your complete lack of it. And so it makes sense that part of this song of the Lamb would be, how can people be like this? Who is not going to worship you? And rebellious people in their ego, in their pride, fully self-sufficient feeling humans refuse to give God the worship he deserves. How insane are you? I don't mean you. And I didn't mean you. I sort of looked right at you. And I know earlier I made fun of you. But How insane are human beings? This God who exists is demonstrated in the very fact that they're breathing. In the very fact that there are stars in the heavens. Galaxies that we haven't discovered yet. In the very fact that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. In the very fact that doctors don't cure anything. They can cut on you and send you home knowing that you'll heal because that's the way your body was made. Science can't describe that. Biology can't describe that. It's an astounding thing that just shouts over and over at the cellular level or at the cosmic level. It shouts, God is real. God is powerful. God is almighty. And human beings will not bow the knee. And so the question is asked, Who will not fear you, O Lord? Who will not glorify your name? Because you alone are holy. Nobody else. Nobody else gets to stand up and say they're righteous. Despite the fact that there are religious movements in the world that claim that if you follow their methodology, you will become personally and individually holy and righteous. No, you won't, because God alone is holy. And you need, according to Jesus, you need to have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, and they were trying. And you need a holiness greater than theirs to stand in the presence of that righteous, holy God. And you ain't got it. So where are you going to get it? Where are you going to get the holiness that God requires in order for you to be in the presence of God? Where are you going to get that holiness from? God has to give it to you because he alone is holy. And the people who are standing in heaven seeing the glory of God are ready to declare without question, you alone are holy. You're the only holy one. For thou alone art holy. For all the nations will indeed come and worship before you. By the way, that's declared back in Jeremiah. It's prophesied in the Old Testament that ultimately all the nations are going to come and worship before God. And right after God pours out the seven bowls of judgment... He's going to establish the kingdom where Christ is sitting on David's throne in Jerusalem. And indeed, as I said before, all the nations are going to stand before him. Everything God has said in the Old Testament, everything he has predicted, everything he has prophesied and said he was going to do, he's going to do. And then you see the validation of all that here in the book of Revelation. One more sentence and we'll be done. All the nations will come and worship before you. Why? Because your righteous acts will have been revealed. When Jesus is sitting on the throne in Jerusalem, is there going to be any question about whether the Bible's true? No No more questions. No more debates. No more arguments. Here, let's try this. Anybody lately moved a mountain? No, he's going to. When he comes back, his feet touch the Mount of Olives, according to Zechariah, and the mountain moves out of the way. 
okay, that's going to be pretty convincing. And it's going to be mighty works, the kind of works that no human being could possibly do. And the nations of the earth are going to have to admit that when God sets up his king in Jerusalem, that he is indeed king of kings and lord of lords. Now, if you know that, start worshiping him now. Don't wait. Start now. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.